Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of Best Barrett Talks. Uh, today we will discuss the development and use of cryoablation, as well as touch upon its potential and position as treatment option in Barrett's neoplasia. Our speakers today are Bas Weusden. Uh, he's a professor of gastrointestinal endoscopy at the Utrecht University uh, and also gastroenterologist in the St. Antonius Hospital uh, and UMC Utrecht. And next to him is uh, Thorsten Bijna. He's head of the Department of Gastroenterology and Interventional Endoscopy in Dusseldorf. My name is Vincent Joustra and next to me is my co-host Eva Wright. And this is Best Bear Talk. Um, well, just before we start, for our new listeners, uh, or maybe listeners who are not that familiar with Barrett's esophagus, we usually treat Barrett's-related neoplasia uh, by resecting uh, all visible lesions in the Barrett segment. And this uh, treatment can be followed by radiofrequency ablation, which is a heat-based uh, technique to eradicate all uh, remaining Barrett's epithelium. However, um, over the last few years, a new treatment uh, technique has arised, and that is cryoablation. And that's where we are going to talk about uh, today with our two experts. So maybe, um, Bas, can you explain a little bit to our listeners what cryoablation is? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me. Um, cryoablation actually is not new. It has been there for many, many years. But the cryoballoon ablation in Barrett's esophagus is a new modality. And cryo makes use of, as the word says, of freezing the tissue. And we know from other fields in medicine that it can be effective in treating neoplasia. So there's quite a lot of experience in nephrology, for instance, for renal cancers, uh, but also in other fields, in pulmonology and, and all other fields of uh, medicine. And also there is experience with cryoablation in Barrett's, but it was a different type of equipment we use then. Yeah, so how does it work? Well, it works by um, freezing the tissue. And freezing the tissue um, results in a couple of mechanisms, which in turn results in cell death. And that's what you wish to accomplish. You wish to accomplish cell death. Um, you want to eradicate dysplastic cells or Barrett cells. And uh, there is a very acute effect of cryo. And the acute effect that this intracellular Ice, form, ice crystal formation, and that disrupts the cell and the nucleus and so on. But there are other uh, mechanisms also causing cell death, and that is, um, so the, it's an acute effect, that is the ice crystal formation, but then uh, it also induces apoptosis, and that is a process which uh, takes hours to days. But there's also vascular injury, and vascular injury um, is a later effect that also causes cell death, and that can take uh, days to weeks. So there's a couple of mechanisms causing cell death. That's basically how it works. That's very interesting to hear. And, and, and Torsten, so uh, we already heard from Bas that the cryoballoon is a more novel technique, but it has been around for many years. Um, and so what are different methods to apply this uh, this freezing well, ablation? And, uh, and could you maybe walk us through the procedure for our listeners? How do you do it in clinical practice? Yes, first of all, also thank you for having me and involving me in this um, amazing podcast. So, um, yes, you already mentioned it. Uh, the, it is now a balloon-based technique that does not apply the cryo, the um, nitrogen, directly onto the mucosal surface, but uh, it uses a balloon that is attached to the surface that we want to treat, and then the cryo is applied to the mucosal surface inside uh, of the balloon. So um, in terms of 
the procedure itself, we have the patient in the endoscopy room. Um, the patient is usually sedated during the endoscopy, lying on the left side, and we perform upper uh, endoscopy first. Uh, as you already mentioned, we have to do endoscopy to rule out any visual uh, neoplasia that is left in the in the Barrett. Um, that should be resected and not be treated with any ablation method. And then uh, we do endoscopy, we clean the esophagus and inspect the landmarks. If we have to treat a longer Barrett segment, we tend to set some markers on the mucosal surface that we can uh, use at a later stage to position our balloon and to determine the area we want to treat. And then we can um, insert the balloon the balloon catheter through the working channel of the endoscope. What's also a very good feature that it can be done through the working channel of the endoscope and mm -hmm. not uh, over a guide wire, for example. Mm. Therefore, we need a therapeutic endoscope um, that we position there and then we position the, the balloon in the area we want to treat. We have a foot pedal to control um, the balloon, to inflate the balloon and also to rotate the, um, the diffuser that is used to apply the cryo onto the mucosal surface. We can adjust the direction of, uh, of it. And then we have another controller that is operated by our assistant. Um, and this is connected to the balloon outside of the endoscope uh, and the, uh, the cartridge of the nitrogen that is uh, in a certain cartridge is connected in this controller. And then we can adjust the, the um, we have some settings that we can modify and this is more or less the uh, the dosage of the cryo that we apply is uh, determined by the time that we apply the the, the spray onto the surface this can uh, then be adjusted usually it used to be 10 seconds now we use eight seconds of ablation and one once everything is in place uh, we can inflate the balloon by pressing a foot pedal uh, we can look into the balloon using our endoscope. We have a nice endoscopic view into the balloon, and then we can see the catheter inside the balloon. And we can rotate the catheter inside the balloon. We have one opening, the diffuser, and we can direct this opening towards the area we want to treat. And then we can apply the treatment. Um, and using this device that is more or less called a focal device because we can treat only a certain area of the surface at one time uh, is directed towards one area then we can do the treatment and then readjust and do retreatment un uh, until we treated the entire segment we want to treat but this is in preparation of this podcast i also read about uh, the cry spray and cry balloon and um, so you're also describing you have a catheter in a balloon and then you spray your liquid nitrogen but is that sort of similar than the cryo spray or is, was that without the balloon just spraying it on the surface you want to treat or this is more or less the same principle but um, the, the 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 spray is applied onto the inner surface of the balloon that means the um, the nitrogen does not directly come into contact with the tissue itself but it leads to a um, freezing of the mucosa and also the uh, the um, structures uh, below the mucosa um, and the temperature goes down up to minus 85 degrees centigrade uh, and this is then applied to the uh, tissue and leads to the effects that Bas already described. And the good thing about the balloon is that as opposite to the cryospray technology 
the uh, gas which is generated while spraying the liquid nitrogen into the balloon, it expands and that is causing the freezing effect and that is vented back through the same catheter towards the handle and inside the room. So there's no risk of inflating the stomach, Mm -hmm. which was one of the problems with the catheter-based spray technology. Uh, There's no risk of inflating the stomach or over-inflating the stomach. It's contained to the balloon and vented back. And the second thing is that it is a much more predictable application. If you spray, then it depends on how long you position your catheter at the same spot or how fast you move along the esophagus or how uh, close you are with your catheter uh, in relation to the mucosa. So it's a more predictable uh, and also uh, a more predictable application of cryotechnology and also probably safer because of it, uh, well, the venting back Mm -hmm. capacity of the system. And I can imagine, um, so for each patient you have a look at at, at the area of Barrett's and then you need to do some sort of freezing-thawing cycles. Is there there a standard protocol? How many times do you do that? Or does that depend on the lesion you see? It depends on um, a couple of factors. Um, One uh, factor is, of course, the length of the Barrett segment we want to treat. Currently, in the trial that we're currently doing, we treat Barrett segment up to five centimeters in length in one session. Um, and um, uh, so then uh, it depends how many ablations you, uh, you need f- to treat this. And as I previously mentioned, uh, we um, can modify the dosage that we apply by the time uh, we apply this uh, to the mucosal surface. And um, currently, we... Uh, re- we learned from the trial that we're conducting that we could um, reduce the dosage. Um, uh, We applied 10 seconds previously, and now we went down to 8 seconds per area that we want to treat. And this is more or less that um, uh, uh, altogether, this is the the area we can can treat in one, one session. And in the meantime, sometimes we have to change the cartridge of the nitrogen in the um, in the handle uh, of the of the balloon and then we can treat all the whole segment that we want to treat in this session you touched upon the freeze and thaw cycles and that is something which was in the spray technology mm. was a usable uh, a usual um, way of applying cryoablation so the free thaw cycles and usually were two or two four or even more three freezing and thawing cycles, mm-hmm. but the cryo balloon uh, utilizes only one freezing and then okay. thawing, so no repetitive treatments. Okay, all right. Um, and I was also wondering, um, because not every patient is the same patient, um, and not every esophagus is the same esophagus, and also some patients might already have a little stricture in the esophagus due to reflux or due to previous treatment. Um, is that a problem uh, for the balloon cryoablation or do you have different kind of balloons? Could you maybe elaborate on that? Yes, I can. Um, the balloon itself is a highly compliant balloon, so it accommodates into the esophagus. It, 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 the shape will... Um, accommodate the shape of the esophagus. So that's not a problem, but the issue you're probably referring to is that in the narrow esophagus, you probably are closer with your diffuser to the mucosal wall and in a very large esophagus. So the dosing is a little bit, very little bit, depending on the size of the esophagus. Well, the uh, rationale here is that in 
cryoablation, probably the margins of safety are a little bit wider than in the heat-based technologies. And that is because heat-based uh, ablation technologies alter the structure of the structural molecules. So the, the proteins will denaturate by heating them up and a freezing tissue uh, preserves the extracellular matrix. And the, the thinking is that by the, the fact that the extracellular matrix is preserved, that the uh, window, the therapeutic window is a bit larger. So you can probably ablate deeper without causing too much damage. So the, the therapeutic window might be larger, but it is conceptual, it's difficult to prove that, of course. And do you also, have, because if, if that's the principle, do you also see less strictures? Well, if you go through the literature of cases published so far, what I learned from that is that the stricture rate of cryoablation is more or less the same than in other technologies. Um, of course, the hope was that we can reduce the stricture rate to nil, but of course that's never true. Um, so that, is that your impression as well, Thorsten? Yes, uh, this is also my impression. We are obviously waiting for the results of the ongoing trial, but um, this is also our feeling. And this not only depends, uh, this is my, my view, not only depends on the technology what we are using, but also on the pretreatment of the patient, um, the amount of uh, endoscopic resection, the, the duration of reflux prior to uh, this disease. So there are a couple of also patient and procedure-related factors that influence the stricture rate. Um, we will have to go into detail. But currently, we see, this is also our impression, as many strictures. Um, I hear you both uh, talking about a very big trial that is currently uh, ongoing um, and which we hope to have the results soon. Can you maybe uh, tell a little bit more about this trial? Yes, yeah, sure. It's a uh, European multicenter trial evaluating 107 patients uh, with... Um, not too long barrets, maximum barrets length of five centimeters, uh, using the focal cryoablation device and treating them with cryoablation and following them up for one year. And we are almost done with the inclusion. So the, l the last patient of the 107 patients will be included next week. So that's good news. And then w they all enter a follow-up protocol in which they are biopsied, of course. And after one year, we can report the results. And do they get one cryoablation per patient or do they have a full eradication of the Barrett's? Uh? Full eradication of Barrett's. So subsequent treatments just like RFA every three months until complete eradication of all visible Barrett's and also hopefully complete eradication of intestinal metaplasia. And if I could maybe continue um, um, Torsten, so um, I've been reading about uh, cryoablation and cryospray um, in terms of uh, complete uh, remission of uh, dysplasia and also intestinal metaplasia, um, showing around well, well, remarkably high percentages of of complete remission. Um, I was wondering if there's any long-term data because that's the ultimate goal uh, in preventing recurrence. So not only having a short-term goal where you can ablate all the, the uh, well re residing Barrett's, but then, of course, you want it to be as effective as the golden standard or even better in, it, in the future. Is there any long-term data out there um, or should we uh, wait for the trial? So, um, unfortunately, also this trial will not provide long-term data at this stage, but this will um, prove first 
that we have a new or, or relatively new effective treatment, hopefully, and also a safe treatment. This is what we can show now, and long-term data will be available then in the in the course. Uh, so we will obviously follow up the patients uh, on a long-term basis as well. But um, it will, for every new technology, be difficult to... Um, uh, to compete with the existing gold standard, what is heat-based radiofrequency ablation, because we have very high amount um, of high-quality studies. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we need long-term data. But the first step that we want to achieve is that we can show an um, effective and safe treatment. And, and so maybe, Bas, so the long-term data, we still need to wait uh, uh, long-term. Um, but maybe on the short-term, uh, so this is, of course, a uh, well fairly novel treatment. It's compared to heat-based technology uh, such as RFA. Um, could you tell us something about the sort of differences or advantages uh, of this technique compared to the golden standard or maybe even the disadvantages as well? Yes, well, there are... Um I think in terms of effectiveness, the data which are up now, which are present now, they are comparable. And I'm not that afraid that if we um, have a good result after one year, then we are uh, completely surprised after five years yeah. of many recurrences. Because we do a very rig rigorous uh, biopsy protocol and we, we don't find any uh, subsquamous barrets, for instance, which is... Uh, one of the mechanisms through which you can have uh, a, a recurrent disease. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not that afraid about that. Concerning the potential benefits, well, there's at least one benefit, and that is that cryo in general uh, is less painful than heating tissue. And that is something which is well recognized in all the fields of medicine as well. So the cryo itself, freezing itself, has some sort of uh, analgetic effect. Mm -hmm. And that is what we have investigated. It was not a randomized comparison, but it was a sort of case control study type of um, uh, evaluation, evaluating uh, patients with RFA, first ablation, with patients who have been treated with cryoablation, about 28 patients in mm -hmm. each arm about that. Um, and there was a significant difference in patient-reported outcomes, mm. so pain, duration of pain, intake of uh, painkillers, for instance. Mm. And that's also the impression uh, I think most endoscopists have with this technology. Do a you agree, uh, and, that and that is due to the numbing of the nerves. Like, for instance, if you go out into the cold and your fingers become numb as, a, as compared to a sunburn, that, uh, that actually hurts. The or mechanisms are, I think... Or is that a bit oh no. simplistic? Uh, simplistically thought. Um, we know the, the uh, cryo been used also in completely other fields, like in sports, for example. It mm. can be used as an an uh, analgetic agent. <laughs> so um, the clear mechanisms maybe are not fully understood, uh, but uh, obviously, and this is also our impressions: the patients suffer um, less pain and uh, shorter pain duration. Um, and uh, in the end, this is what counts for the patient. Another potential benefit um, is that, in theory, cryoablation allows you to ablate deeper. Mm. And there are some, yeah, some situations in which you wish to have very deep ablation. For instance, in patients with uh, residual cancer after an endoscopic resection, uh, with uh, 
no surgical candidates, for instance, which you want to offer some additional treatment, and then, well, we really want to have a deep ablation. And, uh, for instance, animal studies suggest that you can really do a very deep ablation without causing perforations in yeah. the esophagus. Yeah. Um, and in that situation, cryoablation is a more logical yeah. uh, treatment yeah. than RFA or is it APC. I- is it done more o- also for in the palliative setting for some patients, if you have a big tumor after resection or if it's an in- inoperable tumor? Well, yeah. Thorsten, can you comment on that? Yeah, yes, I, I, I can imagine uh, a couple of clinical situations also in um, uh, tumors that cannot be treated with other methods. Maybe the cryo is not the tr- um, treatment for uh, long-term curation, but we can treat local recurrence, un- untreatable, otherwise untreatable tumors uh, uh, in un- not surgical uh, candidates, for example. You mean untreatable by standard methods? By standard yeah. methods, okay. But this is experimental, yes. right? That's important yes, to, but so to mention. So it seems to be uh, effic- as efficacious as RFA on the short term. We need some more long-term data, but it seems to have a, a better energetic effect on the patient with a potential deeper ablation, um, if, if, if that is a sort of summary of what we discussed now. Um, and so, so what is maybe the unmet need for the future of this technique? Are there differences in the procedure time or learning curve, or is there a difference in cost? Um. Well, we we uh, elaborated on the advantages of cryo, and we didn't elaborate on the potential disadvantages. Oh, we, we can do that. Yeah. Y- yes. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to do. Yeah. Um, and one of the uh, disadvantages is that it's. In RFA, for instance, you see very clearly what you have ablated because it gives you a whitish uh, sloughing of the mucosa. And in cryo, that is much more difficult to see. When the ice patch has dissolved and it's thawed, then uh, you have to remember what areas you've treated. Well, you can see it, but it's much more difficult. So it's also more difficult to line up in side-by-side ablations, mm. the, the subsequent ablations. And is that also because of sort of the three mechanisms that you mentioned, that part of the working mechanism is probably later on due to the vascularization that is impaired and stuff like that? Or yes, and it's just the fact that heat will cause denaturation um, of your proteins. And that, that is just like throwing an egg into your uh, on, on, the, on the heat plate. Yeah. Well, it will become whitish yeah okay that's what happens in yeah. the esophagus as well so it's more clear to see yeah yeah all right yeah and and so i was also wondering so uh, so we have these two techniques um and there still needs to be long-term data and there are some disadvantages some advantages of course with every technique so maybe a question for the both of you so how do you see where to place this treatment within all the different options available now for baritone place in the future is it going to be for every patient? Is it going to replace RFA? Is it going to be for a specific niche of patients? So what are your thoughts? So in the end, we have um, a couple of endpoints that uh, would, um, would w- where we need data to determine the future role of cryo. I think in comparison to the available gold standard technique that we have, um, the most important endpoint, of course, is uh, um, curation of the patient. And therefore, we need uh, data from 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 the trials. If the data is comparable, then I think there will be a good indication for cryoplation. If we have um, other 
quality of life endpoints that also um, speak in favor of cryo. That would be another uh, good reason to uh, do cryo. Um, currently, it is um, a procedure that is not very long. However, it is still the catheter is that we are using is still a focal catheter. Uh, what means that we can treat one area that is uh, more or less um, uh, a small area of the um, uh, the Barrett segment we want to treat mm -hmm. at one moment, and then we have to readjust and retreat. So um, for RFA, we have currently balloons that do a circumferential 360 uh, uh, degree ablation. So in the future, we would expect to get other catheters that treat larger areas in in uh, only one application and this will further uh, help us to do a quick procedure to reduce sedation time for the patient mm. and to make it more convenient to everybody to yep. apply cryo. And the technology is being developed. Um, we will, in at the end of this year, will evaluate a catheter which is able to ablate three centimeters in length and half of the circumference. Mm -hmm. So that's a large area device, so to speak. And then you have to rotate the dispenser while keeping the balloon inflated and uh, ablate the remainder half of the circumference. And for sure that is needed, that uh, that type of catheters is needed to be competitive with uh, RFA. Yeah, so it makes the procedure quicker. Uh, yes. Or yeah, less time consuming. And um, we also spoke a little bit about the adverse events after cryoablation, which are comparable to RFA um, in the trials so far. Um, I was wondering, do you also see um, poor healing after cryoablation? Uh, because that's also one of the problems that can happen after RFA. Well, that has not particularly been investigated, but there's no um, logic behind thinking that um, cryoablation will have less patients with um, a, a, a long duration of inflammation and poor healing. Because that's more an, an issue of ref severe reflux or patient characteristics more than um, related to the type of ablation. Well, I would like to thank you both extensively uh, for your participation. I think we learned uh, a lot. Our listeners um, at home learn a lot about this well. Uh, novel, not novel technique, but novel application of this technique. I think it's a very interesting uh, counter to towards uh, heat-based technology, and I think we're going to hear lots more. We've heard about a trial that's coming up, some long-term data, and uh, potentially, um, well, could be uh, a treatment that's going to be used widely in clinical practice. I'd like to thank you both as well, and everyone at home, thank you for listening. And uh, this was Best Bear Talks. Mm -hmm.